we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome back, dear listener. Episode 398, closing in on that 400 number. Yeah. Goodness me. Yes, I'm Trevor, a.k.a. the Iron Fist. With me, as always, these days, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, listeners. I'm going to wonder what the hell I've done with my life over the last six or seven years. <laughs> well, some of it you went walkabout, Scott, but that's okay. You came yeah, back. I did go walkabout, you know. Yeah. So if you're in the chat room, say hello. Don's already in the chat room saying hello. Good on you, Don. This is a bit like old times. There's no Joe tonight. He's got a function mm. that he's at. So it's just just you and me, Scott. It's just like back in the yeah, very, definitely. very early days. Yeah. Well, in the very, very early days where we used to record everything and send it over to you to update and that type of thing. So, mm, yeah. yeah. So, I remember you once saved me from getting sued. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Delete stuff that might be defamatory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Hey, I was at a function, a Father's Day function, and my daughter had given me a Father's Day present, which was a black T-shirt with white writing, and the writing mm. on it was... Ask me about my podcast. And so, <laughs> so I had to wear that at this Father's Day function. And of course, people asked me about my podcast. I met a guy right. called Mark who's in the building down the Cool and Gather there. And, and he, uh, I think, I started listening to the podcast. And anyway, he said, Well, why the name? The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. And I guess we haven't said that for a while as to why it's that name. So I was. I came up with that. I think it was, yeah, I know, but I also said at first, though, when there was there was a criticism or something like that that was going around the secular party, and I said, you know, might I suggest that Trevor wraps his iron fist in a velvet glove? <laughs> Did you? Okay, I don't remember that. But, yeah. But I, I can anyway. remember a review of Penfold's Grange wine, red wine, which is mm. notorious as being a very, very strong, full-bodied wine described by one of the wine connoisseurs as an iron fist in a velvet glove, meaning it was incredibly powerful, strong flavour, but with a softness coating it around the edges. And and so I'd like to think that I'm the iron fist with the hard, powerful opinions, and you, Scott, come in, sit on the fence with your velvet glove and just smooth things over and go, yeah, maybe, maybe not, yeah, not so sure about that, just little yeah, softening, softening the edges a little bit. It is becoming increasingly difficult to disagree with you on the United States. Right. Yep. You know, it's one of those things like, you know, that it's in the <coughs> notes and that sort of stuff you've sent through. That is very much in my wheelhouse where I've said numerous times that the Americans have had some very disastrous foreign policy blunders. Mm. And this was their record of, the, of their foreign policy blunders, you know. Yeah, I'm a little bit and worried. Was, it, Sorry, did you want to go on? Sorry. No, go on. Oh, just the, this guy Mark I met, he is an American as well. <laughs> and so, mm. so he's a new listener and I'm thinking, whoops, I'm sorry, Mark, if I – there's going to probably be a fair – I mean, every podcast, every episode has a fair amount of anti-American sentiment in it these days because, let's face it, America's up to a lot of mischief. So 
I apologise if you are. Well, I don't apologise. It's just just prepare yourself for some anti-American stuff. Is what I'm probably saying. James is in the chat room. He's saying hello as well. So, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the Echidna Strategy, which was a, a book that's come out by a right-wing commentator about AUKUS. Essentially, we're going to be talking about BRICS expansion and a little bit more about property and Sydney property and intergenerational issues, a bit about the media and propaganda, maybe an update or another view on the Ukraine just to clear up whether it was provoked or unprovoked, see how we end up. So, so yeah, we'll get started. And Scott, there's a book coming out by a guy called Sam Rogervine, R-O-G-G-E-V. W-E-N. And I have already ordered it. Have you? Right. I ordered that because I heard about it on the one of the podcasts I listen to every day. Mm. I couldn't remember if it was the ABC or 7am who was doing it. Mm. And I thought to myself, that sounds very interesting. Mm. So, anyway, so I thought I'd, I'd read that. I read a review by Gareth Evans, former cabinet minister during the Hawke-Keating yeah. governments. I think he might have been foreign affairs at that time. Mm-hmm. I think he might have been. So he's reviewed the book. So the thing about Sam Rogervine is this guy's from the right-wing camp. He's a member of the Lowy Institute. Can't get – that's a good solid right-wing credentials right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me just see if there's something else about this guy's background. So he, he's no hardcore lefty. He's a senior officer of National Assessments Intelligence Analyst. He was a senior Office of National Assessments Intelligence Analyst before joining the Lowy Institute 15 years ago. And he described himself entirely plausibly as a liberal conservative. So he's from the right and he's taken a shot at the whole arrangement with America in terms of our defence. And so that's the, the sort of the main thing to come out of the talk about his book. And... What he's done is he's done a meticulous analysis of the factors in issue here for the United States, China and Australia, and he's basically saying that uh, at the – by the way, dear listener, Scott's got a frog just outside his window, <laughs> which you'll probably hear in the background. We're not recording this in a park, but in the in the recorded audio, I'm going to try and get rid of that frog, but I'm – Starting to wonder whether I'll be able, able to. be able to. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, there is a frog outside his window. Anyway, back to this book. What he's saying is that USA would not enter a fight with China because it's not in its interest that it would cut and run because why spend money and people on this Part of the planet when you can just retreat back over the Pacific and be quite safe. So he's essentially saying, Australia, don't rely right. on America for help because if push comes to shove, they won't necessarily back out. It would be quite likely that they'll back out. The second part that he makes, the point that he makes is that's okay that we should operate on the basis that we won't get assistance from America because it's really difficult for China to attack and invade Australia because guess what? 
we're a long way away and there's a lot of water between China and Australia. And it's just there's plenty difficult. Of, there's plenty of opportunity to sink an armada that's on its way south. Yeah. So Well, you might, be, you might be able to sink every ship, but you're going to get a hell of a lot of them. Yeah. I think in his book he quotes that London is closer to China than yeah, Australia. Yeah, Sydney is to yeah, Beijing. Sydney, yeah. yeah. So mm. we just don't sort of think of it that way, but it's a useful point. And basically the echidna strategy is that we should be defensive like an echidna, that an echidna isn't really capable of taking territory or attacking other other sort of animals, but it can set up a defence so that it's not attacked and mm. that we should do this close to home. We shouldn't be sailing around in the, in the South China Sea away from home. We should set up our defence here. And, and that's sort of the essence of what he's saying. And it's coming from a right winger which makes it the story. And, and just he's making the point that we can actually stop China if we put our minds to it. And, Scott, do you remember, for the listeners of this podcast who have been with us for a long time, if you've been with us since, this is old news, February 2018, dear listener, I had Han Tu on this podcast, who's a mate of mine, and Air Force ex lecturer in defence in Indonesia, and he basically gave the argument about how hard it is to conduct a, mar- a maritime invasion of another country, particularly a country like Australia that's got a few weapons up its sleeve, and that, that we'd have a very good chance of repelling China if they tried to do it. And so that's not news to listeners of this podcast have been with us five and a half years ago, but it might be news for other people who've just read comments about Roger Veen's book. Well, there we go. Mm. Now, Landon, yes, the Japanese did get close, mm. but they were also rampaging through a very undeve- undeveloped part of the world at the time, mm. whereas these days for them to make it down, for them to make it, for the Chinese to make it down here, they'd have to get through Vietnam, they'd have to get through Taiwan, they'd have to get through all these other modern countries before they got too close to us. Mm. Mm. Uh, and maybe this time we wouldn't send all of our troops off over into Europe or something like that. Keep them home. Exactly. You know, mm. that, that is the whole point. Like, you know, we're not going to be off. If there is going to be a war in this part of the world, it's going to be very much concentrated in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that Russia or anything like that is going to pull off anything. Well, they've already they've bitten off more Ukraine than they can chew. Mm. So, you know, I don't think that they're going to actually poke the NATO bear too hard. It's one of those things. I think that if there is going to be a, if there is going to be a conflict in our neck of the woods, it's going to be contained mm. to Taiwan. Mm. As to whether or not the Yanks actually do put up a fight over that, I don't know. Mm. I don't think, honestly, China's best move will just be to to take over the industries that Taiwan is good at, chips and stuff, and basically force Taiwan into a situation where for economic survival they'll want to be part of China because their economy's been crushed by China. That, that would be the smart way yeah. for China to do it. That would be the smart way to do it, but... 
it's one of those things. I just don't see that the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China are ever going to be the same again. Mm. You know, they're just, well. it's just one of those things. The history of it is is so divergent and the type of thing that I just don't think they're ever going to be able to mm. be the same country again. Mm. Anyway, there was a review of Roger Veen's book in The Rationale by Paul Monk. I've had an issue with Paul Monk before when he wrote a review of, who's that pompous author, the British guy, often talks about Douglas Murray, and he was waxing lyrical about wonderful Douglas Murray. He's just a prick. And uh, so I had a bit of an, uh, a, a sort of a review of the review being quite critical on that one. So Paul Monk's done a review of Roger Veen's book, you know, positive, but it's kind of laced with anti-China sentiment, I think. as an example of the subtle propaganda that we're subjected to. Did you hear Lord Mayor Tate on the Gold Coast? He wants the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. And he said one of his reasons was it'll be a good sign of faith for our Pacific neighbours so that they will be friendly with us and won't move over to the evil Chinese in terms of friendship stakes. So his, his rationale for having the the, uh, the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast was as, an, as so a, he wants, a strategic he wants to, move against Chinese sentiment in Pacific Island so he countries. Wants to, he, he wants to basically reuse those Commonwealth Games stuff that was set up last time, was it? Uh, probably. I mean, they've got – who knows, it could be quite – a legitimate argument to say we've got all the stuff here, let's run it, we can do it mm. for low cost and it'll be worthwhile, but not because it will curry favour with Pacific Island nations who might otherwise swap their allegiance to China, for God's sake. Mm. And this is just said with a straight face on the Gold Coast News Bulletin as if that was a perfectly legitimate thing to say. Mm. But, you know, in, in the review of the article here, he says, this is Paul Monk, I've known Roger Veen for 25 years and have observed his career in the intelligence world and at Lowy since it started. He is quietly thoughtful, whereas many of those who have dissented from AUKUS come across as rancorously left-wing, anti-American and even pro-Beijing. None of these things can be said of him. He says as if it's a bad thing be rancorously left-wing, anti-American and perhaps pro-Beijing. This kind of anti-China sentiment that just gets thrown around everywhere. You know, you might have very good reasons as a rational person to be rancorous. Rancorous meaning a rancorous argument or person is full of bitterness and anger. You might be left-wing and you might be anti-American. There's a perfectly rational decision he says it as if it's sort of a bad thing. And mm. there was an article again in John Menetou blog by Dr. Mike Gilligan. He's worked for 20 years in defence policy and evaluating military proposals for development, including time in the Pentagon on military balances in Asia. And he says, like Paul Keating, Australians should be angry. Australia's security is at risk. No other nation is so foolish so self-delusional, so divorced from the basics of statecraft, nor so feckless with its citizen security in pursuit of America's objectives. Shouldn't we be white 
hot with rage at this government's abdication of sovereignty. Good point. That's the only thing I don't understand with this is the abdication of sovereignty part. I understood exactly what he was saying there, but not the abdication of sovereignty. Because well, I don't see where, how that you would end up abdicating your sovereignty if you if you take up this August deal. We're relying on the Americans to supply submarines when yeah. every indication is they won't be able to supply. And we're also going to be relying on them to operate and maintain them and to teach us how to. And until the submarines are built and ready for us, they're supposed to lend us some, which they plenty of Americans have indicated. We don't have spare submarines because guess what? Most of them are in a dock somewhere being maintained because they invariably break down. So the Americans have said we don't have spare submarines to give these Aussies in the interim or at any time, and we'll be lucky to make enough for ourselves, let alone Australia. And even if we deliver some to Australia, it'll be the Yanks who'll be helping us maintain them. That's the abdication of sovereignty. We will not be guaranteed possession of submarines that we own in the short term that we can control ourselves that we would if we were buying off the shelf Japanese or German subs or something like that. That's that's the yeah. the abdication of sovereignty that he's talking about. Yeah. There we go. Hence the title of this episode. We should be angry. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Hmm. Right. BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. It's been going for a while. They had a meeting recently yeah. in South Africa. Putin had to log in via Zoom because <laughs> he can't risk international criminal. Yeah, he can't risk international tra- travel. And they agreed to admit to the BRICS alliance: Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia have been invited to join. There's a whole bunch of others who want to join this block. Dear listener, this is one of the most significant moves in foreign relations in a long, long time. When you see Russia, Iran, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, what do you think, Scott? Well, they are traditionally American sort of, well, not the Iranians so much, but the UAE and Saudi Arabia are traditionally on the American side. Mm. So they've clearly decided to raise their middle finger to the United States. Mm. I think oil. Mm. I don't know what percentage of the world's oil supply those guys control, but it's a lot. Well, they'd, they'd have the most of it. Mm. Yeah. And that is and the besides big... the Yanks have the, the Yanks have already moved into oil self-sufficiency that they produce by shale oil and that sort of thing. So they no longer need to rely on the Saudis as much as they used to. But the whole point is these countries are going to be dealing in oil and not Mm. in US dollars. US dollars, exactly. And that will disconnect the US dollar from the oil, which will Mm. basically cause its value to decline. Because at the moment, every country that doesn't have its own oil supply has to buy oil using US dollars. dollars. They have to, therefore, get them from somewhere. It creates a demand for US dollars 
that is artificial, that artificially supports the US dollar. It's been a huge advantage for the US since I moved away from the gold standard. And the other part about this, Scott, is kudos to China and the other operators there for getting Iran and Saudi Arabia to join something together. Mm, the same sort of thing, yeah. Because these guys are sworn enemies. Shia, mm-hmm. Shia, Shia and Sunni? Shia, Shia and Shia. Oh, no, isn't Saudi Arabia Sunni and oh, Iran Sunni. is yeah, sorry. Shia? Shia. Yeah. yeah. So to get those two together into a group, quite amazing. Really quite mm. amazing. Can't be understated. So there's a whole bunch of countries lining up to join and as these transactions for all, between these countries, they will more and more do transactions in their own currencies, not using US dollars, and uh, and it will... Uh, I thought they were saying that they were going to be using the Chinese yuan, weren't they? Uh, not necessarily. Some For some transactions, yes, but for others, no. So okay. it just depends on the country. So mm-hmm. a lot of that hasn't quite been worked out, how they're going to do it, but that's definitely where they're heading. So... That's a big one, and that will be crucial for the demise of the American financial hegemon in the world. Because I think something like over 80%, maybe 85 to 90% of international transactions are conducted in US dollars. These are transactions between, you know, Costa Rica and the Netherlands, nothing to do with America. Yeah. So much is done in US dollars, and of course the US, because it's in US dollars, believes it has the power to impose sanctions and other penalties wherever a US dollar is used. So, big move. Right. The Voice news poll. Support for the constitutional change has fallen to 38%, while backing for the no vote has risen to 53%. Scott? Seems very unlikely. I think it's... I think it's it's highly unlikely it's going to win. Mm. You know, I think it's I think it's I think it's going to be defeated. Mm. You listener, I did an interview with Paul from Canberra today. It went for an hour and a half, and my goddamn Zoom recorder, for some strange reason, only kept the first thirty minutes. So, I'm going to release that as a little bonus during the week on the Voice, and then next week. I think Liam, who debated you, Scott, on the Greens, he's a yes voter and he wants to debate me on The Voice. So I think next week we'll probably have Liam join us to talk about The Voice. So, dear listener, if you're out there and you think that there's a concept in The Voice that has not been discussed and you want to join the conversation, let me know during the week and you can join in as well. Email Trevor at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and we will make an arrangement. So, right, that's on the cards. Also, polling so that support for the coalition has reached its highest level since the federal election last year. The opposition now leading Labor 37 to 35 on primary votes, but Labor still leading on two-party preferred 53 to 47. I reckon, Scott, it's going to be tricky for Labor at the next federal election, despite how hopeless Dutton and co are. Yeah, I know that. But, you know, it's... uh, I would have thought that sort of support 
is not uniform across the whole country. I would have thought that that support is in places where I live and that type of thing. That you're going to have an you're going to have an increased coalition vote up here than what you'd have down in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brisbane. You know, I don't believe those three green <coughs> seats are going to be permanently held in Brisbane. Right, but. I don't believe that they're just going to switch back to the coalition either. You know, I reckon if somebody voted Green at the last election, nothing has happened that would make them want to vote Labor. Yeah, I know that because you're a Green. But name, if you if think about it, if somebody had actually voted Green at the last election, what what's possibly has Labor done that would sway them to vote Labor instead the next time? Possibly not a hell of a lot, but what I'm saying is that they're not going to just switch back to the coalition. No, they're not going to do that. But but they no. were really former Labor voters who became Green voters. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. So it's not a, it's not really a question yeah, they, of switching they, back they, to they the Liberals. The, no, but they got that seat out in the western suburbs that's name escapes me that was a Liberal seat. Ryan. Ryan. That's yeah. where I am. They got that. Yeah. Mm. They got that seat. Now... That is, I honestly believe that had you have had a decent teal candidate and that sort of thing running in that seat, they would have picked that seat up. Mm. Because I honestly believe the people, you know, it's one of those things like we are already living through the through the effects of climate change right now. Mm. You know, it's getting bloody hot and it's getting get hotter. And this this summer is going to be a disaster for us. You know, they're already they're already putting out bushfire warnings for Brisbane and that type of thing. And I just think to myself that that is why people voted Green last time because they thought to themselves, we've got to get something done, so we're going to vote Green. Do I actually honestly believe that they're going to go back to the coalition? No, not in the first couple of terms. But is there enough to make them vote Labor? Well, possibly not. I don't see anything. I don't think. Yeah, so it's one of the. At least they have. At least they have legislated that there's going to be a forty three percent reduction and all that type of thing in our carbon dioxide outputs. I think you when know. these stage three cut tax cuts just keep rolling through, yeah, and yeah, and, and, and with that will Orca, actually hurt them with AUKUS and uh, just the and and basically with interest rates crunching people and people feeling economically worse off, and and also, you know. Albanese is going to own this recession, whether he likes it or not. By the time of the next election, he won't be able to say, oh, it's all Liberals' fault. And there'll be a lot of people experiencing a lot of pain with higher interest rates who are going to go, well, after three years of Labor, I'm a lot worse off. Yeah, but I honestly don't believe they can actually blame the Labor government for raising interest rates. No, but people will... Will blame Labor for their discomfort. I say, well, you guys are in charge, mm. and you've been there for three years, and I'm feeling really sore in the pocket. So I just think he's. Mm. I just think they've thought they're going to cruise to a second victory, and they're going to end up having to do a lot. Well, they're not, they're not going to cruise to a second victory because they haven't. You know, they haven't actually. I, I think that they still will win next time, but mm. it's one of those things I don't believe that they're going to actually turn the Senate or anything like that. I think the Senate will probably get another tinge of green to it. Mm. And what am I trying to say? 
It's just that they haven't actually taken the bull by the horns. They haven't actually attacked the ta- stage three tax cuts and they didn't actually walk away from AUKUS, all of which they could have done. Mm. They could have actually said, look, we can't afford the stage three tax cuts and AUKUS, so we're going to can both of them. And we've also got to get our debt under control and that type of thing. And then they would have already got a hell of a lot more voters behind them if they did that. There'd be a lot of pissed off Labor voters. A lot of I them. think there are. A lot of former and that's members. Why yeah, I know, like yourself. Mm. And that's one of those things. It's just one of the reasons, dear listener, why I've actually been advocating a vote for the Greens this time is not to actually permanently do it, just do it for the next couple of terms, yep. just to put the fear of God into the into the hands of the Labor Party. Very good. Just want to return to property, and this was an article from The Guardian. So... A household earning the median income of 105000 so that's the median household income, dear listener, 105000 can now only comfortably afford 13% of homes on the market, according to property mm. data company PropTrack. Now, that's on the basis that they say, uh, they assume that a house is affordable if a median household does not need to spend more than 25% on mortgage payments after putting down a 20% deposit. So that's the sort of definition. But even if you don't look at that, even if you don't like that particular definition, just look at the comparison. So at the moment, median income 105, comfortably afford 13% of homes on the market. They say that three years ago, using the same formulas, a median income household could afford almost 40% of homes. It's gone from 40 down to 13%. Mm. Mm. And those 13% of homes would be very would be very hotly contested. Mm. So so that was that. And last was it last week or the week before where I went through that history of tax changes by Hawk Keating, mm. negative gearing, changes to capital gains tax. Yep. yep. And there was a section in there that I I forgot to talk about. I'll quickly mention it now. It's from that same academic paper. And and what it said was that in 2015, 2016, the proportion of overall mortgage credit going to landlord investors stood at 35% Australia-wide. So back in 2015, mortgage credit to landlord investors, that was 35%. Of, of of the overall mortgage credit, sixty five percent must have been residential mortgage. So that thirty five percent was three times higher than the USA, UK, and Canada. And in Sydney, it was actually fifty percent of the Sydney market was landlord investors. So if 35% was already three times, that means that the UK, Canada, USA, normal landlord investors is somewhere around 12%. And in Mm. Sydney, landlord investors as a percentage of the mortgage market, 50%, almost five, four times. Yeah, four times higher. Yeah. Of all apartments in Sydney... 49.6% 49.6% are owned by investors. Holy smokes. That's <laughs> apartments. 
there's your there's your property problem right there, dear listener. Ah. An intergenerational report came out from the Treasury. Yes, and that was quite depressing reading, wasn't it? It was. And what they're saying is that baby boomers, guess what? It's all good at the moment, no pressure on the pension system. <laughs> Looking down the track. Gen X has got a problem. Well, yep, or even the generation next after that who don't own property because mm. here's a, an example. At the moment, the so lots of people still get at least a full or part age pension, even with super. At the moment, the full age pension for a single person is 27600 per year. For a couple, it's 42000 Rent assistance might add a further 4500 per year at best. According to CoreLogic, median rent across the country is about $30,000 in annual rent. So we are saying in the pension system, well, you get $27,000 for a single, $42,000 for a couple. We'll give you $4,500 if you need rent assistance. Meanwhile, median rents are around $30,000. yeah. So the system at the moment basically assumes that most people own their own home and are relying on and are not relying on the pension to pay for their mortgage or rent, mm. which would be the case in, all, in, in most cases. So, so as the population who can't afford to buy a home ages and enters retirement, they're going to be really screwed because the amount of rent assistance that's traditionally available in addition to the pension is a piddly amount that's nowhere near what you need i don't know how people survive at the moment scott who, who God, are, i don't know that those numbers really frightened me who are retired you know, now i've i've got a place and all that sort of stuff which i own but you know i couldn't understand how anyone could retire and just rent you mm. know you'd have to be out whoop whoop in the cheapest accommodation possible mm. And they'd be so far away from hospitals and everything else. Mm. So, see, decades of neglect are all going to come home to roost. Probably, mm. probably when the last boomer dies. Is my tip. <sighs> Where are we up to? Eight oh eight. I've got to try and get more positive on this podcast, but it's hard to, Scott. It's. It's but the intergenerational report was quite depressing. I haven't read the whole report. I've only read snippets and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, when you actually look at it, it's getting really very ugly. Mm. Middle ground mistake. So I have been recommending decoding the gurus and both Liam, listener Liam, who debated you on the Greens, he's a bit of a fan of decoding the gurus, but he and I were both a bit disappointed with their approach to Noam Chomsky, when they get into sort of politics, they, they, Matt particularly likes to say that they're in the centre on a lot of issues, maybe slightly centre-left, but in the centre. And Caitlin Johnston makes the point that 
One of the worst mistakes you can make when formulating your understanding of the world is to begin with the assumption that the truest and most accurate position must lie somewhere near the centre of the two major political perspectives you see laid out around you. And in short, she's saying that really the left and right-wing parties, whether they're Republican, Democrat, Liberal, Labor, are way over to the right and there's a limited Overton window there of accepted discourse. And if you think you're in the middle of that is a good place to be, you're ignoring the propaganda and the system that has driven the discourse so far to the right that the centre of both of the parties is a very right-wing position, is what she's saying. And she says, the majority of people have been duped by propaganda into espousing mainstream political perspectives. Those with an accurate read on things will necessarily be a small fringe minority until the dynamic changes. So you'll have to get comfortable rejecting mainstream orthodoxies, dismissing mainstream media and shunning mainstream politics because those things are inseparably interwoven with the matrix of deceit by which our rulers have pulled the blindfold over the civilization. There we go. So that was her talking about holding a centrist middle-of-the-road position is not necessarily where you should be. Scott, you think you're coming mm. more to the left, middle? What do you think of her comment? What do you think of her comment that the, the left and the right, Labor, Liberal, Democrat, Republican, are way over to the right? What do you think of that as a... Concept. No, I think that's accurate. Mm. I think it's accurate for sure. You've only got to look at the British Labor Party. It's no longer a, a patch on what it was. Mm. Yeah. And you've only got to look at our Labor Party with the stage three tax cuts. Which is not a patch on what it is, yeah. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> she also really goes to town on America a lot in her writing. and uh, Yeah, she does. But she's really making a correct point. Yeah, I know she is. It, it's one of those things. It, it's it's like I've said many, many, many times before. The Americans have been res historically responsible for some absolute disastrous foreign policy blunders. Mm. And, you know, she's highlighted them there. Yeah. I'll just read some of her highlights. Mm. Whenever I say the US is the most tyrannical regime on earth, I get a lot of objections from people. And these are always people who simply haven't thought very hard about the horrific realities of US foreign policy. Sure, you can name some governments who are more brutal and oppressive towards their own citizenry than Washington, but you can't name any who are more brutal and oppressive overall when you zoom out and look at the big picture. The United States is currently circling the planet with hundreds of military bases and waging wars which have killed millions and displaced tens of millions just since the turn of the century. Its sanctions and blockades are starving people to death and en masse every single day. It works to destroy any nation which disobeys its dictates by toppling their governments via CIA coups, proxy armies, partial and full-scale invasions, and the most egregious number of election interferences in the entire world. I mean, this is all true, all documented. We get a guy comes out with the echidna strategy and someone writes in the rationale full of just 
bullshit anti-China sentiment without for a minute stopping to say anything about some anti-US sentiment, thank you very much. It only comes from independent bloggers. It's, it's like I, I watch the news, Scott, sometimes like Channel 7 News typically, and just the casual reference to the evil China that is building up military in response to, you know, and, and who knows what they're going to do with it, without for a minute giving context of how they're being surrounded by US Army bases in the Philippines, Korea, and any number of other places. It just pisses me off. The, we're in a, we are living in a McCarthy, McCarthyist era. McCarthy's era, dear listener, was when in the USA, you know, the communist scare and, you know, reds under the bed everywhere and, and you know, you lived in fear of being deemed to be a communist. It's that sort of level of propaganda when, it, when it's so well documented. What the shit that that country's been up to. It's frustrating. Don't you think that the US, though, is relying on those old, old laws? We Not laws, but you had a written, unwritten sort of agreement back in the old Soviet days and that sort of stuff, provided they stayed on their side of the Danube, provided we stayed on our side of the Danube. And then in China, provided they stayed on their side of the 38th parallel, the provided we stayed on our side of the 38th parallel, there wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, China's China never, has the USA's never stuck with that. There's so many military bases around the world. Yeah, I know, but those those military bases are basically still where the old lines of demarcation were. Like the Philippines has always been a host to American military bases. Japan has always been a host to American military bases. South Korea has always been a host to American military bases. Vietnam hasn't. Indonesia hasn't. China was on our side in the war and they set up military bases. Yeah, I know they were. Because they were like, well, they're the next enemy. We'll just start getting ready for them. Sorry? They just decided they're going to be the next enemy. We'll just get ready for them because they're the communists. I think that was was in response. Okay, but I think that was in response to China getting involved in in the Korean conflict. And America wasn't involved in it? Yeah, I know they were. I've got no but, doubt about that. But, you know, the Yanks, the Yanks could actually look at it and they'd say, well, the North actually invaded the South. We're here to prop up the South. So that would have been the end of it. Yeah, but when you said the old system of we'll stay behind this line and you stay behind that line, there was no line that yeah. America decided to stay behind. The entire planet was theirs <laughs> to roam over. Well, I don't think the Yanks have got, mm. I don't think Yanks have got bases in Africa. They've got bases in Western Europe. They've got bases in dotted throughout the Pacific. They've got bases here in Australia. They've got their own bases over there in the the Americas. They've got bases everywhere, all over the planet, that are nowhere near America. What are they doing in in Philippines? What's the point? In the Philippines, you know, the Philippines. It's so far away um, from mainland America. They've got no right to be there. What are they doing in Europe? Well, they're there because they're part of NATO. And they're so far away from their own territory. But my point is Mm -hmm. they feel they can roam anywhere on the planet is fair going for them. 
Yeah, I haven't I been don't hiding behind any. I haven't been hiding behind any line under some gentleman's agreement. We'll stay behind this line. You stay behind that line. That has not been. Well, I think that, uh, a strategy. I think they have actually. I think they have actually followed that strategy of the thirty-eighth parallel. They haven't actually crossed that line. I, okay, in in Korea. Yeah, in Korea. Okay, there's one line, one tiny little line yeah. because they can't. Okay, because they can't. I mean, they tried to. Yeah, I know. Because they I mean, would, what do you mean? They tried to. A war. They they Sorry? they op- they tried to. They operated a war trying to cross that line. Well, they did, but that was also a mistake of MacArthur and that sort of stuff. Who wanted to prosecute the war and he wanted to actually bring China into it. Now, how do you, how do you actually rang up the president and said, "Now, what you got to do is get on the phone to Peking right now and tell them that we're only going as far north as their border, and then after that, we're going to stop." But you know, China saw it, panicked, and got involved, and that's why the whole bloody thing broke down into nothing more than a a bloodbath. Yeah. So around the 38th parallel. So Caitlin Johnson is exaggerating in her critique of American foreign policy. Is that? No, she's not exaggerating. You know, she's not exaggerating. You know, she's not exaggerating because th- those those election claims are, are accurate. You know, mm. they, they did actually get involved in South America and they did fuck it up very mm. badly. Mm. I had, and I honestly believe they're going to screw up Iraq too. Mm. Anyway, I had lunch with Cam Riley just uh, yesterday. It was great. We were both a couple mm. of old men bemoaning the world. He was just commenting of how it's impossible to get anything meteor worthwhile on ABC anymore. Like it's just it's just cats stuck up a tree stories on the ABC these days, or really shallow, mm. really shallow opinion pieces. It's really deteriorated. Can't get anything out of them of, of interest, I don't think. Um, Bernard Keane, writing in Crikey, talked about Westacott. She was the Business Council of Australia's spokesperson and she was on 7.30 Report and she was allowed to repeat unchallenged <clears throat> the claim that company tax cuts would increase investment, productivity and wages. And... Sarah Ferguson is normally like a <clears throat> rat up a drain pipe with all sorts of other people that she dislikes. Just let it sail through. It didn't stop and say, well, hang on a minute. There's any number of studies that have shown that, in fact, company tax cuts do not work. increase investment productivity and wages. And it's just pocketed by the shareholders. But it was just allowed to sail through. She's super aggressive to some people, but just let this business councilwoman Westacott sail through. And then, of course, other journalists pick up on it and in the following days are questioning the treasurer and saying, oh, well, the business council says you should be lowering taxes because of, you know, to increase investment productivity and wages. Are you going to do it? Without any analysis of what a shitty suggestion it was. And it's now an issue that supposedly Chalmers has to deal with just because some lobbyist spinning the line Mm. for her group comes up with the same shit they've come up with for the last 10 years, repeats an idea that's rubbish, and it gets a life of its own that people have to deal with. 
that's just a failure of this media class to turn around on Westacott and say, hold on a minute, you've been saying that crap for 10 years. We know that that is not the case. Got anything new to say? So he concludes Bernard Keane saying, this is the theatre of the observed stuff. A pack of profiteers and gougers simply repeats the same drivel it has been uttering for at least a decade, slaps a different name on it, has it covered straight-faced by journalists who pretend they've never heard it before, leading to other journalists to quiz politicians about it as though it's a legitimate matter of public debate, prompting chin-stroking commentary about the terrible state of politics. It's entirely vapid at best and deeply disingenuous at worst, a reflection of how shallow, amnesiac and incapable of original thought and scepticism mainstream media journalism is that this circle jerk constitutes economic debate in Australia. That's good. <laughs> that is good, Bernard Keane. That's the yeah, sort Bernard of colourful language. Crikey, doesn't it? Yes. That's the sort of colourful yeah. language we need. Yeah. This circle jerk constitutes economic debate in Australia. Someone should make a T-shirt out of that. <laughs> 822. Ukraine. What do the people of Ukraine want? What did the people of Ukraine want? From the John Menadue blog. <laughs> Alison's just arrived in the chat room. No doubt Heather, her Allison, mother. Get Bev. Oh, Bev, sorry, is listening as well. James is still in the chat room. James made the comment the Philippines and Japan were occupied and the US never left. Right. Back to the John Menadue. Japan Manager. does have a security agreement with the United States, though. Mm. By choice. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, one would hope so, but it wouldn't surprise me that they would lean on. Mm. Anyway. Yep. Graham Gill, who's he? Professor Emeritus at the University of Sydney, a longtime student of Soviet and Russian affairs. He is the author of 25 books and over 100 articles. As well as Soviet and Russian politics, he has published on democratisation and the origins and development of the state. That sounds like a reasonable CV for someone to comment on Ukraine-Russian affairs. He's currently working on a handbook on Russian politics and society and a study of revolution and terror. He's a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences, Sciences in Australia and a former president of the International Committee for Central and East European Studies. He probably knows a little bit about Ukraine and Russia. Mm. He was looking at articles that had been in the John Menadue blog. One was by David Higginbottom with his views on the Crimea arguing that there is widespread acceptance of Russian rule. The other article was by John Richardson, arguing that that was wrong, that any pro-Russian majority in the Crimea is a result of the influx of ethnic Russians and basically arguing that the original Tatars should be the people who decide what happens in Korea, in Crimea. Graham Gill comes out on the side of David Higginbottom which is the one that there's widespread acceptance 
of the Russian rule in Crimea. So interesting analysis of some polls here. He says, the question of the extent of support for unification with Russia is quite vexed. We're talking about the Crimea here. Richardson cites Kiev International Institute of Sociology polls, which show that in the years leading up to annexation, between 36 and 46% of the population favoured joining Russia. Two things can be said about these figures. First, any country that has over a third of its population wanting to join another country has a serious political problem. And in this case, that problem was created by successive governments in Kiev. Secondly, other polls for this period showed significantly higher proportions of people favouring unification with Russia. In 2008, a Ukrainian Centre for Economic and Political Studies poll showed around 63% support for joining Russia. A UNDP study in 2011 showed 66%. In 2014, a German poll had the figure at almost 71%. So certainly during this time, a USAID-funded poll set the figure at only 23%. But This just goes to show how uncertain the whole area is. But a bunch of polls showing in that period around 2008, 2011, 2014, in the Crimea, numbers like 63, 66, and 71% of the population of Crimea wanting to be part of Russia. So factor that into your Ukrainian thoughts about... I think the Donbass is an entirely separate issue, isn't it? Yeah, well, it would be, but let's just... uh, We've got something on Crimea here. Yeah, no, we've got something on Crimea, which, which I don't... As much as it pains me to say this, I don't disagree with them there because Crimea has, well, it was the only warm water port that the Soviet Navy had and that type of thing. And I think Mikhail Gorbachev said before he died that he saw that Crimea should be part of Russia, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So I think to myself, you've got to take the last reasonable bastard that was running the place and you've got to, if, if, he, makes, if he makes a statement, you should be listening to him. Mm. So I can actually agree with them taking Crimea, but I don't agree with the Donbass. He also yeah, goes on to say that, just- that after the Russian invasion, there was a Russian-sponsored referendum. There are good grounds for you viewing this result with considerable scepticism, given the domestic situation and in I Crimea, yep. <laughs> including the pressure applied. However, a series of polls taken after the referendum by reputable polling companies Gallup, Pew Centre and Levada Centre all showed overwhelming support for the decision to join Russia. So that was post the Russian invasion, just some more polls. So just add all this into your thoughts about about it. What else does he say? There was an unhappiness in the Crimea about the absence of effective regional autonomy. He says, turning to the question of international law, it's clear that the armed seizure of a state's territory by another is illegal. This applies as much to Crimea and Russia as it does to Kosovo and NATO intervention in 1999. But there is also a principle that populations should have the right to decide their own forms of government, the right to self-determination. And, as in the Kosovo case, 
there was the view that the facilitation of this by armed forces from without could be justified. So it's just making the point that NATO actively conducted activities in Kosovo because, in their view, the local population wanted out from the country that they were part of, and that was a justification for NATO action. If you apply the same principle, then based on the polls that we've just heard about, you would say that the Russian intervention into Crimea was no different to the NATO intervention in Kosovo. So if you're going to condemn one, you have to condemn the other. Very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Joining in the chat room late, Noisy Andrew and Don Tuvi. Oh, no, Don's been there a while. Noisy Andrew's there. He Hello, Noisy. Right. And was the war provoked? This is an article written by Edward Lozansky. He was born in Ukraine, studied in Russia, worked in America as a laser fusion researcher and a professor of mathematics and physics. He's got relatives and friends in all three countries and for the last 35 years he's been trying to do his best to make them friends, partners and even allies. Instead, all three are now at war. So he is seen as a Russian sympathiser. But here's what he has to say, which is that... So in May 93, we organised a trilateral meeting on Capitol Hill with legislators from the US Congress, Russia's Duma, Ukraine's RADA, to discuss what the US were prepared to do to help Russia and the Ukraine in their transition from communism to democracy. And Congressman Tom Lantos, House Foreign Affairs Committee, chaired the meeting and said they had... Gorbachev told us in 1989 he was prepared to dissolve the USSR and had he requested a trillion dollars to do it, we would most likely have agreed to give $100 billion annually for 10 years. However, as it turned out, the Russians did it all by themselves, so why spend US taxpayers' money when the job was already being done? You're on your own, guys, said Lantos. And other senior people, CIA director, said the same thing. You're on your own. But it was a bit misleading because the US did not leave Russia and Ukraine alone. Yankees didn't go home. Billions of American tax dollars were poured into Ukraine, not to boost its economy but to reform public opinion that at the time was predominantly in favour of a neutral status and was against joining NATO. This is well documented. This propaganda money was spent by America in the Ukraine. It was Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Victoria Newland, who admitted that we have invested over $5 billion to assist Ukraine in these and other goals that will ensure a secure and prosperous and democratic Ukraine. In reality, the purpose of this money was to drive a wedge between the two Slavic nations and push Ukraine into NATO. The money plus funding from Soros Canada and other Western countries helped instigate the Orange Colour Revolution in 2004 to bring a pro-NATO government into power. They succeeded, but the anti-NATO mood in the country remained strong. Therefore, a second revolution was needed This time its name was Madan, 
and it was Victoria Newland who coordinated it on location in Kiev while constantly reporting and getting input from Joe Biden. Needless to say, the new Ukrainian government that was selected by Washington immediately declared its intention to join NATO. There is no doubt that if not for this coup, there would be no war in Ukraine today. But it's no surprise that the White House, a bipartisan majority in Congress, and think tanks that are funded by the military-industrial complex are blaming it all on Russia. So there's another view of how this all came about. Hmm. On text, dear listener. Ah, I'm gonna. F- I'm gonna go back and read that because that is. It puts the whole Ukraine war in a very different light, doesn't mm. it? It's just not a poor democracy that was sitting there doing nothing that suddenly was attacked by Russia. There's a whole bunch of things going on in the lead-up and American fingers involved. Yeah. Dear listener, I am going to, during the week, as I mentioned before, I recorded an interview with Paul from Canberra. Unfortunately, only the first 30 minutes survived. Did I mention that on air or did I mention that to you, Scott? You did mention it, yeah. Okay. And I'm going to tack on to it was a summary of what was missed off. And that's going to include, that's going to include a little bit from, from Marcia Langton in 2013 and what she had to say about constitutional recognition at that time. And basically there was an expert panel on recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution in 2012. And the recommendation coming out of that was we should get rid of references to race in the Constitution. And Marcia Langton argued really strongly as to why having race referred to was dangerous and inappropriate. They also argued for sort of a historical note about the history of Indigenous people in Australia and, you know, settlement. They didn't ask for a voice back in 2012. If they'd just stuck to what was on offer or what was being contemplated in 2012... I think they would have ended up with a referendum proposal that would have been acceptable to a lot of Australians. And it's the addition of the voice that I think that has really crueled it. And I think that's Noel Pearson. But anyway, look out for that in your podcast app during the week. 30 minutes interview with Paul from Canberra. And then at the end, I'm going to summarise what was cut and also talk about Marcia Langton and her view at that time about why race shouldn't be part of the Constitution and why that to me seems at odds with the current proposal to put race in the Constitution. So I'll look out for that one. Well, Scott, we made it an hour 37 without Joe, just like the old days, <laughs> just the two of us. 
Yeah. It was just a little bit like going down memory lane, wasn't it? Yes. So, right, dear listener, if you've got something to say about the voice, you reckon there's an argument that hasn't been dealt with, feel free to email me. If you want to talk about it on air, you can. If you just want to write what it is, then contact me during the week, trevor at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au. Looks like I think Liam might be with us next week to talk about the voice and the arguments. So he convinced you, Scott, that you should probably vote green. Maybe Mm. he'll convince me that it should be a yes vote. I don't think he's going to do that. You never know. Open to the... Open to the possibility, but I would be surprised that if he came up with an argument that I hadn't heard before, I would be surprised. Yeah. 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 Alison asks, where's Joe? He's at some function, Alison, so that's where he is. And by the way, there's going to be a secular conference, Scott, in Victoria. In Sydney, isn't it? Uh, I think it's in Melbourne. Okay. I think. I thought it was Sydney. bunch of speakers, all of the secular Gurus in Australia, from Luke Beck to Fiona Patton to... It's in Sydney. Is it Sydney? And yeah, our, according to Alison, it's in Sydney. And I'm going to call her our very own Alison. We'll also be there as one of the speakers at the... So, yeah, if you are in Sydney or you feel like going to Sydney for a one-day conference on secularism and where it stands, then that's coming up. Where it used to stand. Hmm. Anyway... Hmm. That's going on. Right. I don't think there's anything else pressing, Joe, Scott. So, all right, dear listener, we will talk to you next week. Bye for now. Okay. Good night, everyone. Bye now. Congratulations, Trevor, on five years of fine podcasting. Like a good communion wine, your podcasts get better with every year. Dear listener, Don't be seduced by Trevor's dulcet tones or seemingly reasonable arguments. When it comes to Trevor, remind yourself of the wise words of Brian's mother. He's not the Messiah, he's just a very naughty boy.